Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Written at the beginning of the 20th century, Machen's classic work remains as relevant today as it was when it was written. Machen sought to expose liberalism's foundation as contrary to that of orthodox, biblical Christianity. In his own words, Machen saw the issue in the church of the present day as being not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom, between two essentially different types of thought and life. So prepare yourself as we dive into the antithesis of Christianity and liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Hello again and welcome back to the Audience Archives. We are busy discussing Christianity and liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. And in this last discussion, we're looking at the last two chapters of the book, Salvation and the Church. I am your host, Pastor Drew Bieber. I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Josh McDaniel. Uh, Josh, what have been your thoughts on the book so far so in our discussions? The, the thoughts that keep, it seems, coming back in each discussion, and as I was reading it, um, are, wow, Machen really handled these situations. He very eloquently argued against the liberal position, and yet they're still in front of our faces today. Right, right. So, And, and it's, it's still the same crux of it, is that it seems all of this liberal Christianity and all of the pulpits that still espouse it today Man, they are so focused and so centered on a person's emotions and feelings. Right, right. And so to take Christianity and to reduce it to emotions and to feelings is not Christianity at all. We have to be people of the book who focus in on doctrine of God and man and of Christ. And as we're going to see, you know, in these two chapters on what true salvation is, and on what the church is. Yeah, and it's certainly true that all religions other than the Christian religion are ultimately man-centered religions. Very it's man-centered. A, it's all about you and what you can do and how you can get to God and how you can be a better person and all these things. And what separates true religion, you know, speaking of true biblical religion, yeah. and the religions of man is that the Christian faith is not about us. No. It's about something that God no. did. And we see that, you know, whether it's liberalism or any other, you know, variation of it or really any other religion, it always comes back to what's what's the focal point? Is it man or is it God? Right. And while you may have true Christians who espouse, you know, sort of non-biblical things. Yeah. I mean, a Christian can be an error. You're right. Absolutely. Um, you know, the question we continue, we continually need to ask, even of ourselves is, is this man centered or is this Mm -hmm. God centered? Mm -hmm. Is the Mm -hmm. focus of, of this particular practice, this particular theology, this particular idea, is it us or is it God? Is it interested in God and who he is and what he has done and what he has commanded for us? Or is it interested in ourselves? And that's truly what separates that. That's, that's where the dividing line is between the Christian faith, and all other pretenders. And we're still, you know, reeling with the same frustrations and the same difficulties that Machen was 
combating against when he wrote this book. Absolutely. And I don't see an end in sight as of right now, certainly not in my lifetime, but that's because we're still teaching the same truth. And the lies that we still hear today are the same perversions of that truth that we've heard ever since the beginning in the garden. Yeah. And so going to this chapter on salvation, you know, again, I want to read just the opening paragraph. The one thing I like about each of these chapters is he kind of builds on the previous chapter. Yeah. You know, um, and that's exactly what he does in this opening paragraph. He says, it has been observed thus far that liberalism differs from Christianity with regard to the presuppositions of the gospel the view of God and the view of man Mm -hmm. with regard to the book in which the gospel is contained and with regard to the person whose work the gospel sets forth. It is not surprising then that it differs from Christianity in its account of the gospel itself. It is not uh, surprising that it presents an entirely different account of the way of salvation. Liberalism finds salvation so far as it is willing to speak at all of salvation (laughs) in man. Christianity finds it in an act of God. Right. And that's exactly what we're talking about here is that liberalism, the issue with liberalism is that it ultimately sets salvation in man's hand, right. hands. And it's about you attaining a particular moral enlightenment yeah. or whatever. And, and he says, you know, he says that liberalism espouses a different gospel. And Machen would say, just like Paul did, which is no gospel at all. Yes. You know, yes. Th- it's, he's not saying that there is an actual other gospel that that there's another means by which you can save. He's saying that they're making up a completely different gospel and it's false. It's not true because there's only one gospel and it's through Jesus and through what he accomplished on our behalf uh, on the cross. Right. And so what, what is it about liberalism or really any false Christianity what it is about salvation that they get wrong? Okay, so they what they what people love to do, and, and you have to be careful here because because there are many different flavors of this of this error. There is a flavor of this error, I think that that is honestly trying very hard to reconcile biblical truth with the act of God and salvation. And I think they, 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 they're wrong and they miss it. Uh, but I do think that they're maybe not heretical. Sure. The idea that the idea that they can do something for their salvation, we understand from scripture that salvation is completely and totally a work of God. Yes. That man has nothing to do with being saved other than, as is famously quoted, we contribute the sin that makes it necessary. Right, right. So we do nothing to save ourselves. There is no work that we put on there. Um, There are those who believe that we put our faith in Christ and that's what saves us. And that is true. We are saved by grace through faith. What the scripture tells us, though, and what the scripture clearly teaches is that faith is a gift from God. Yes. We don't have that faith. It's not ours. It's alien to us. It's foreign to us until God <laughs> regenerates us, gives us this gift of faith, and then we take that faith and we put it back in him. So we recognize that even in that faith being given to God, being put in Christ, that's given to us so that we can put it in Christ. We recognize salvation is a complete and total work of him. 
not of us, not man at all. Where the liberal Christian gets into a heretical view is not where, like, maybe some will sit there and they'll just, they, they don't recognize that faith is a gift of God. They think that faith is something that they have intrinsically and that they can, that they can do that. that I, I, you know, I, I do think you can, you can mess up on that and you can yeah, still be okay. Yeah. And we would, something like that, we would classify as, uh, I think the way Spurgeon put it in atonement, he said, you, you misidentify the root of salvation right, right. with the fruit of salvation. Right. Faith is a fruit of salvation. Right. But it's not the root. Right. Our, we're not saved by our faith. We're saved by Jesus. Right. And that's, and I think that's, that's an important distinction. And I yeah. think it's a very helpful way of, of understanding it. And that's a very helpful uh, illustration to kind of get us to where we need to be. Right. Right. Where the liberal Christian, <clears throat> I think would have been an error in Machen's day. And even in our day is that they feel as if there is something intrinsically in them that that they must they must do in order to make the work of Jesus active in their life. Right. That right. Jesus's atonement didn't atone for anything until they put it into action by their works and by their means that it's just kind of almost stale and stagnant that Jesus is just, he's kind of knocking on the door. Hey, please let me in. Please let me in. Please let me in. And, and until we open the door and let Jesus in, he's helpless to save us. Um, that's heretical. That's wrong to say that, that we are sovereign over when, Christ's salvation is applied to our life and that Jesus is kind of bound up in our free will or our sovereignty that is heretical right um, right and and it and, and and I think the liberal Christian might even take it a step further and say that we're our own savior and that we can perhaps even out of our own, I guess gusto or out of our own faithfulness, we can get to a level of not sinning on our own. Right, we can become right, sinless right. in our own strength. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, you know, Machen has done a, a good job of setting up his argument up to mm-hmm. this point. And really the misunderstanding of salvation for liberalism comes because they have a misunderstanding of the nature of man and the nature and, of God and the nature of God, but the nature of scripture but, and of Christ, he sets it up beautifully. But specifically, if you have this idea that man is basically good, mm-hmm. well then the gospel message is going to be somewhat different for a good person yeah. than it would be for a depraved sinner who needs salvation. Yeah. Right. If, um, you know, depending upon what the problem is, the diagnosis or the treatment might be different. And so we can't, because they found fundamentally have a faulty view of mankind. Once we get to this, this issue of the gospel message itself, it's no wonder that they get it wrong. It's because, well, they don't understand, they don't understand rightly what the plight of man is. Yeah. And he has a real funny quote. I think it's actually in a previous chapter about what a preacher must, (laughs) what he must say to this congregation. You know, this is a good gospel and it's good for you good people. Or I forget how it's worded exactly. Yeah, he says this in the uh, this this is in uh, the chapter on God and man. He says, uh, you know, uh, 
kind of going after some of the modern preachers. He says, the preacher gets up into the pulpit, opens the Bible, and addresses the congregation somewhat as follows. You people are very good, he says. You respond to every appeal that looks towards the welfare of the community. Now, we have in the Bible, especially in the life of Jesus, something so good that we believe it to be good enough even for you very good people. (laughs) Such is modern preaching. And I think, I remember the first time I read that, I, I, I think I laughed out loud and I almost fell out of my chair because, I mean, that's the kind of thing you hear today. Yeah. Is that here's here's some good life tips for you good people so yeah. you can continue to be good people and make yourselves better people. Yeah, here's what your salvation looks like. Goodness. Right. Continue just being good like you are. You know? and, and if that's ultimately where we root our salvation and our goodness, again, we've rejected the biblical revelation mm-hmm. about man's nature. I mean, what does what does scripture say about our goodness? Does it say that, oh, God just likes it when you try your best? I think Isaiah has something to say about it. He does, doesn't he? And it's, 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 it's somewhat, rags. yeah. And we really don't need a further explanation of, no, of what don't. exactly he's, he's getting to, but it's, it, our righteousness is filthy. Yeah. It's, it's no good. It's not that, you know, it's not like when you see a, a kid, you know, try to climb something and he falls and he's, Oh, it's so cute. You know, at least he's trying. Yeah. It's not like that. It's, it's pathetic. Well, 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 the, I mean, let me back that up. When I see my children try to try to do something, it's cute. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we try to do something good for God, it's not cute. It's pathetic. It's, it's, it's filthy is what it is. And, and, you know, again, not to get into the muck and mire of the word or anything like that, but the filthy rag that he's describing or that he's discussing there, it's not one that you say, Oh, I need to put in the washing machine and then it'll be made right again. No, it's like, it's a kind of filthy that's so bad that it's thoroughly defiled. I'm going to throw it away. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Our righteousness is a filthy rag that deserves to be thrown away. Right. I mean, that's, that's specifically thrown away in hell. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the level of your righteousness. Good right. job. You know, that's your goodness. Great. Um, and, and so for the liberal preacher, for the liberal Christian, salvation has got to look different Yeah. because it doesn't recognize a need for salvation. Yeah. I guess it recognizes maybe a need for, I could do better. Right. Right. But that's about as far as their salvation can really go if it's really well, boiled down to what they're saying. Well, and their salvation isn't truly a salvation. It's not actually right. being saved from something. They may, you know, look at these good people and say, well, y'all are good people, but I know that you would like to have more money in your bank account. Mm-hmm. And so the salvation that I'm offering is a way for you to have a bigger bank account. Yeah, so it's not saved from house. something, it's saved into something. Right. And there right. is a being saved into something. When we are saved by Christ, we are saved into a relationship with God that we did not have before. So right. there is a being saved into, but that's not the focus of their into. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to see the interconnectedness of all of these doctrines mm-hmm. as it relates to the Christian faith. And that simply... You know, if somebody is simply incorrect on their understanding of the nature of Scripture, uh, it's quite possible that that's the only thing they're wrong on. They may have a good understanding of God. They may have a good understanding of the gospel. They may have a good understanding of man and the church and all these things. But when it comes to the nature of Scripture, you know, they may be like some other stupid person we talked about earlier that said stupid things like, you know, the Bible could be full of errors because it was written by men, you know. (laughs) Anyways. But let, let, let's let's say, for, for the sake of argument, that you could be wrong on just that one thing. Well, if that error goes 
untreated, undetected, un- uh, uncorrected, well, then all of a sudden that error is going to spread yeah, because all of these things, things are so interconnected. Mm-hmm. So if I have a faulty understanding of God's revelation, well, then it only makes sense that I would have a faulty understanding of the God who did the revealing. Yeah. If I'm supposed to understand God's nature through his word and I have a faulty understanding of God's word, well, then my access to the knowledge of God is now faulty. So right. then that means that my knowledge of God is then faulty. Right. And then all of a sudden it just the errors continue to spiral out of control. Yeah. And so we, ha- we have to, right? We have to make sure that we are not, you know, obviously we don't have regeneration goggles. We can't, I can't determine someone's salvation. And I certainly don't want to. You didn't make, get your pair from Amazon? I didn't. No, okay. no. Maybe, maybe it'll, maybe it's just late. Yeah. Yeah, probably. But, you know, I don't want to cast somebody out of the faith or, you know, call them unregenerate simply because, they have a faulty understanding of particular doctrines. Exactly. But we also need to make sure that that faulty understanding does not go uncorrected because otherwise, at least not checked. Right. There are some people who will, who will hang on to a, an error until the end. And it's, it is, it's an error. It's not a heresy per se. It's it's an error. You know, one of the ones that we would look at, you know, is, is there's a difference between where does baptism happen? Who deserves it? Everything. Yeah. We land on a particular side. We think it's only for believers. Those who baptize infants, we think are in error. And there are people who are convinced of that up until the day they die. And they are good and still solid and biblical teachers. They're, but they can have errors. Right, right. You but, know. but because, and, and it's also good to recognize that sanctification takes time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that it's not going to be instantaneous. As soon as somebody's saved, all of a sudden all their doctrinal errors and misunderstandings get corrected miraculously. Right. But it takes time. And it's okay that it takes time. It's okay that the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a particular area or in a particular doctrine takes time. Yeah. You know, we need to be content with God's sanctifying work in his timing. But we need to make sure that we don't give a pass to uh, erroneous doctrines. Right. Because otherwise it's going to influence other things. And that's what we see in this issue of salvation, that because they fundamentally misunderstand God, they fundamentally misunderstand man. They fundamentally misunderstand the nature of scripture and the person of Christ. Well, then it, when it comes to the gospel message itself, they're faulty. They're in error. And it, and it looks nothing like a gospel message. No. Nothing like a salvific message at all. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, they, they kept trying to do is they kept trying to divorce the, um, you know, the, the history of Christianity yeah. from sort of the experience of it. And that's one of the, one of the issues that Machen takes up. He says this in this chapter, he says, it must certainly be admitted then that Christianity does depend on something that happened. Our religion must be abandoned altogether unless at a de- definite point in history, Jesus died as a propitiation for the sins of man. Christianity is certainly dependent upon history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you try to take out the history, you try to say, well, it doesn't really matter if Jesus was actually a man or if he actually existed. What's important is that what we have in the Bible is a good example of how to live our lives. Yeah. Well, then when it comes to the message of the gospel and of salvation, how do we tell people your sins have been atoned for? If there wasn't a historical right. person of Jesus who actually lived and actually died for our sins. Yeah, we cannot claim to anything concrete if we're not basing our religion, our faith in anything concrete. Right. And he says this, he says, gospel means good news, yeah. tidings, information about something that has happened. And so 
we cannot, we cannot divorce the gospel message from these issues of historicity. And there might even be some who say, well, you know, issues of inerrancy, issues of historicity, you know, all those kinds of things like those are, those are secondary. Can't we just be united on the gospel? And the point that Machen is making is no, because if you have, again, if you have faulty understandings of, you know, what may be considered, you know, somewhat secondary issues, which I would argue that doctrines of God and man, of scripture, of Christ, those are not secondary issues. Those are primary issues. Those are absolutely primary issues. But if you have faulty understandings on these things, well, then when it comes to the gospel message, we can't be united because your gospel message is is broken. It's faulty. It's built upon a, a false foundation. Again, we can't. I can't. I can't buy the house because the foundation is faulty. Right. No matter how pretty the house looks. And one of the things that one of the examples that comes to my own personal um, an interaction that I had personally, um, we had a. a, a uh, a mom and her daughter come and visit our church and they uh, uh, were part of a, a Wednesday night service and they filled out a card and so I went to go visit them and they were at the time living with um, uh, her mom, the grandmother. The grandmother did not come to service, but the mom and her little girl came. We went there and it started talking with them and encouraging them to to come back and to see if they belonged to a church anywhere, what their understanding of the gospel was, those sorts of things. And the grandmother comes and sits in the room with us. And she was a very devout Roman Catholic. And if you know me, then uh, you'll know where I stand about Roman Catholicism. I think that it is... I'm very hostile to it. (laughs) I think that Roman Catholicism is a cult. I think it's a very old cult, the oldest of cults. But I do think it's a cult nonetheless. And... This grandmother comes and sits in the living room with us. Here's what is being taught as the gospel. And she starts to bring up a very, and I'll say it, a very liberal idea about, well, wait a minute. What about this that I have to do in order to be saved? What about that? What about that the mass? We, we the have Eucharist. To be, yeah, what about Confession. those things that I have to do in order to be saved? And we would point back to, no, 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 it's not about those things. It's about Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And she kept interjecting. We were trying to talk to the lady and her daughter, um, but she kept butting in and Eventually, she looked at us and she said this. These were her words. She said, well, you and I just believe a different gospel. Right. To which I said, you're right. Correct. We do believe a different gospel and it's no gospel at all. And the reality is that liberal preachers back then, today, Throughout all of history, they have tried to take the work of salvation out of the hands of God and put it into the hands and the strength of men since the beginning. And that was even the message of the serpent in the garden. You can be like God if you eat the fruit. You do this and you get to have your own way to God, to Godness. You do this and you can have it. And it's always been about the strength of our own hand. And that's what the liberal preacher loves to promote. Right, right. And in the same way that we can sort of identify these false gospels 
when we ask the question, what do they do with Jesus? We can, we can also identify false gospels when we ask this question, what do they do or, or what do they do with the atonement? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is their view of the atonement? And, you know, specifically, you know, one of the things Machen was, was sort of dealing with is, is a downplaying of the necessity of the atonement. Yeah. You know, but again, the question is still a good question to ask regardless of, like I said, the variation of liberalism that we're engaging with, Mm -hmm. you know, specifically with Roman Catholicism, you know, we ask the question, well, what do they do with the atonement? And we recognize that their atonement is not sufficient. No, the atonement that they preach of is, is, is insufficient to actually save people. It's actually so insufficient. They had to come up with a completely different doctrine called purgatory yes. that, that says, Hey, I know our atonement was supposed to work here, but since it didn't, we'll let the purgatory burn off the rest of those sins. Right. So you can right. go to heaven. And you know, we, you know, we can, we can look at something like Roman Catholicism and say, well, there's obviously points of unity. Mm-hmm. You know, we, yeah, there we, are points that, that, that we believe touch. in, in the, you know, the historicity of mm-hmm. the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. We believe in the Trinity, mm-hmm. for instance. You know, that's mm-hmm. a that's a doctrine that we believe is ne- necessary mm-hmm. uh, to to remain orthodox. Um, and I'm sure we would find other points of consistency between us. Yeah. But when we ask, what do they do with Jesus? What do they do with the atonement? We find, well, they have a different atonement. Yeah. In fact, they yeah. have an atonement that doesn't work, and that's not what uh, that's not what the Scripture teaches us. No. But again, they have a faulty understanding of Scripture because they believe there are there are other infallible rules of faith and practice, namely in the Roman papacy. Yeah. But at any rate, you know, we have to, we have to look and see what do they do with the atonement? What is their answer? Because the Christian faith, uh, as Machen has already pointed out, is about the removal of sin. It's yeah. about what Jesus did yeah, yeah, in yeah. dealing with sin once and for all. And so if we have something that's calling itself Christian, we have to ask the question, what do they do with sin? How do they atone for sin? How do they deal with sin? And the liberal preachers of Machen's Day, and I'd say a lot of, you know, a lot of preachers today, I kind of have a downplaying of oh, yeah. the atonement that's necessary for sin. And again, because of all these doctrines are so interconnected, it goes back to, well, they have a faulty understanding of sin and of man. And so they don't they don't think of man as being really that bad as needing saving. So no, no, we have a good gospel that's good enough for you, good people. Exactly, exactly. And 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 that's you know as working with kids for as long as I have, man, that is that's been told to me. I man, if it's been told to me once, it's been told to me a hundred times that kids just cannot comprehend, they cannot grasp, they cannot understand the atonement and that they have sin and that they need someone to save them from their sin, that there is a punishment for their sin and they need to be saved from it. That's been told to me so many times. But if you if you give them cotton candy, if you if you softball those kinds of issues, then you haven't told them of the atonement. You have not told them of salvation right, right. because there's nothing to be saved from. Yeah. Yeah. In uh, in this chapter, Machen says this. He says, as a matter of fact, the modern objection to the doctrine of the atonement is on the grounds that the doctrine is contrary to the love of God. So, Josh, why do we have to talk about atonement? Why can't we just talk about God's love? Isn't God's love strong enough? I mean, 
The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear, Josh. It surely does. And I'll tell you this. So if someone asks me that question, my immediate answer to them or, or my response to them, I guess I should say, is let's say someone breaks into your house and kills your mom. Should God just wink at that and pass over that? Should God just love that person? And of course, when you make it personal, they say, no, 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 that person deserves to be punished. And I say, you're right. <laughs> that person deserves to be punished under the law of this world and under God's law. Right. But you are in the same boat as that person in your sin. Yes. You have broken God's law in the same way. And God will not wink at your sin any more than he would someone who hurt you in sin. Yeah. And I've, I mean, I've heard several. And I, I want to say, uh, you know, I've heard you use this example as well, where we said if a, if a judge mm-hmm. got up on the stand and simply said, hey, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and forgive everybody's crimes and uh, because I love you guys and... I just want y'all to have your best lives. And so let me just go ahead and, and wipe your slates clean. Well, we look at that and say, wow, what a wonderful judge. Well, absolutely not. We look at that and say, that's unjust. Yeah. What a terrible judge. That's yeah. not your job. He is not a good judge. He is an unjust right. judge. And even though those criminals might really, really like him, the rest of society and the people that they hurt certainly recognize no, there was nothing good. There was nothing just about that at all. You cannot just pass over that. There has to be a reckoning. There must be, and in the case of our standing with God, an atonement. Yeah. And again, just you know, to keep hammering on the same thing, like we see the interconnectedness of mm-hmm. the doctrines. And if we think, well, God is love, and so that's why... I don't have to talk about sin. It's like, well, I mean, God is love, but you're kind of only hitting on one aspect of who God is. And you haven't even hit on what God loves most. Right. And Machen, you know, points this out. He says, religion cannot be made joyful simply by looking on the bright side of God. Right. For a one-sided God is not a real God and the real God alone. And it is the real God alone who can satisfy the longing of our soul. And so if we sort of overemphasize God's love at the expense of his justice and of his righteousness. Well, then again, we've moved from the God of scripture to a God of our own making. A very man-centered God. Right. A God who sure does like me a lot, um, and he's okay with me. Yeah. And it's got that mindset, that, that Crocodile Dundee mindset. Me and God, we'd be mates. That kind of thought, that we're just buddies. We have an understanding. I knew a man who uh, was in my family, and that was his statement. Every time the gospel came up, me and God have an understanding. And he's now passed. And, yeah, they absolutely had an understanding. Right. But Or God had an understanding. He had a misunderstanding. Right, right. And Machen kind of summarizes the the issue of salvation um, in this one paragraph in this chapter. He says, The atoning death of Christ and that alone has presented sinners as righteous in God's sight. The Lord Jesus has paid the full penalty of their sins and clothed them with his perfect righteousness before the judgment seat of God. 
But Christ has done for Christians even far more than that. He has given them not only a new and right relation to God, but a new life in God's presence forevermore. He has saved them from the power as well as from the guilt of sin. And I think if we miss that aspect of the gospel, of Christ's atoning work, and we forget that the gospel message is really not about, I mean, it, the gospel is for us, but it's not about us. Right. It's about what Jesus Christ did. It's about the way that he has reconciled us to the Father. Right. If we start to make it about who we are, if we start to make it about you know us and our feelings and you know our... Uh, what we can accomplish or what we can what we can accomplish our, making yeah. us you know becoming better people all those sorts of things we we fundamentally misunderstood mm-hmm. what the gospel of salvation is and so beyond that right in this last chapter Machen goes on to talk about the liberal understanding of the church and it's kind of tough to say what my favorite chapter is but I I really did like the things that he had to say yeah. about the church especially because we have such a shallow understanding of the church in our modern day. And it, it, it flows really seamlessly, you know, in, in the book, because once you, once again, you know, he, he makes a good line there. You know, you've got to have an understanding of doctrine. Doctrine has to be a part of it. So we need to know who God is. We need to know who man is in light of God. We need to know what the scripture identifies as the solution between God and man. And that is Christ. (laughs) He is this, he is the solution. And it was carried out through the work of salvation. Now, who is it who are saved? Right. Well, right. Brilliantly, remarkably, beautifully, it's the church. Yeah. And in the opening paragraph, he says this. He says, it has been observed that Christianity, as well as liberalism, is interested in social institutions. But the most important institution has not yet been mentioned. It is the institution of the church. When, according to Christian belief, lost souls are saved, the saved ones become united in the Christian church. And so we recognize that the church is made up of believers. You know, we obviously have local churches, but there's a, um, you know, a a universal church that unites all of all believers. Right. When you come to North Clay Baptist church, you're not coming to the church. Right. Right. There are other believers elsewhere. And yet, although we are distinct as a local church body, we are united and connected with believers across the globe. Yeah, of, of, of all different nations and tongues and tribes and people, you know, and, 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 and we're the only religion that, that really has worldwide implications. We're not just an American religion. We're not just right. an English speaking religion. We're, well, we let's are, be clear that Christianity is not a Western religion to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. That's true. It's, That's true. It's an, uh, it's an Eastern religion. That is very, very true. However, however, you know, you know, Trump, he's, he's the, he's the great. No, I, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I can't even go off there. Even <laughs> a joke. I can't even go. Uh, so no, I, but, um, which side note, I, I saw a video clip of some preacher. I'm not going to say what his affiliations were, but he was talking about how America, you can find America in the Bible. And he went on to say that, you know, people say the United States is not in the Bible. He's like, well, that's hogwash. And he says, first of all, the word Jerusalem has 13 letters, which. I know where this is going. It, it does not have 13 letters, but he was trying to make a connection between the 13 letters of Jerusalem and I think the 13, 13 colonies. colonies. But again, there's not 13 letters in Jerusalem. I mean, let's J-E-R-U-S-A-L-E-M. There's nine, nine letters in Jerusalem. But whatever. He said there was, you know, 13. <laughs> But then he goes on to say, right there in the middle of Jerusalem 
J-E-R-U-S-A. Probably the massive applause, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the crowd went nuts. But anyway, sorry. Talking about the... The (laughs) church, yeah. The church is is not localized to one nation, one continent. It's all over. It's not one right. language. Right. And, and that's why, you know, you have such a, in, in Revelation, when you see all these people from all these tribes and tongues and nations, it's a remarkable thing to read about because, wow, this is not just one little sect of humanity. This is worldwide. Right. The right. gospel is united, unites people from all over. And that's so important to keep in mind, too, because if we look at the history of the church and really just the history of humanity, we see that the epicenter of humanity has often kind of moved around the globe. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and. You know, when we look at today, we see kind of the epicenter of humanity is sort of the Western world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, specifically, I, I mean, for us, it's in the United States because yeah. we're Americans. Right. But what we rec- and often what ends up happening is that we we begin to make an association with God's plan for the world, God's gospel, God's kingdom, and our own like location. Mm-hmm. We start to think mm-hmm. that like, well, if America goes down, well, then God's kingdom is going down too. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at history, we see that, well, the epicenter of the Christian faith was once in Europe. Yeah. And it's not really there anymore. No. But did the Christian faith go away? And then before that, you know, the epicenter of the Christian faith was in Rome. And did it, you know, is it there now? Well, I mean, we've got the papacy in Rome, but as we've already kind of identified, it's It's not. it's It's a separate gospel, separate religion. Yeah. But we'd say, we'd say that, okay, well, the Christian faith has left Rome. Does that mean the Christian faith died? Well, no, of course not. And so when we recognize that, like, no, what God is doing is so much bigger than just our geographical location. Yeah. We kind of, we can kind of rest in the fact that, oh, no, God knows what he's doing. And Thank God's gonna goodness build, he God, knows what he's doing. He's going to continue to build his church. Yes. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Oh, like, that's actually true. Like, yeah. I can actually, I can actually be okay and believe that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's it's such a comforting thing to know that that those who have been saved have been saved by only one source. It's through Christ. They haven't they haven't by their own gusto or their own hands. They haven't saved themselves. But those who have been saved by Christ, by grace through faith in Christ alone, those who have been saved, they are united, and God has them, and He keeps them, and He will preserve them and he'll persevere them until the very end. God is again sovereign and completely and totally 100% in control of salvation, but he is also completely and totally sovereign and in control of those whom he has saved. Right. And who he right. brings united under the gospel into his presence one day. Yeah, and when we speak of true Christian unity, it has to be on the basis of our shared faith mm-hmm. and on the basis of our salvation. Yes. Now, again, as we already mentioned, you can't, there's no way for us to look into someone's heart and to see, hey, do they still have hearts of stone or do they have hearts of flesh? Yeah, like we, we can't see we, that. we don't have any way of seeing that. But the Bible has given us tools to evaluate the genuineness mm-hmm. of someone's faith. And one of the issues with the liberalism of Machen's day that he was dealing with is this sort of, uh, sort of denial of 
the special nature of the unity we have amongst believers yeah. in exchange for a sort of shared, you know, unity with mankind yeah. as, as they put it, you know, uh, the, the universal brotherhood of man is the way they put it. Yeah. And Machen had this to say, he said, the modern liberal doctrine is that all men everywhere, no matter what their race or creed are brothers. There is a sense in which this doctrine can be accepted by the Christian. The relation in which all men stand to one another is analogous to some import, in some important respects uh, to the relation of brotherhood. All men have the same creator and the same nature. The Christian man can accept that the modern liberal, all that the modern liberal means by the brotherhood of man, but the Christian knows also of a relationship far more intimate than the general relationship of man to man. Yeah. And it is for this more intimate relationship that he reserves the term brother. The true brotherhood, according to Christian teaching, is the brotherhood of the redeemed. Right, right. And that's why um, that's why you and I have a brotherhood that and 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 myself and, uh, you know, a believer in Asia or Africa, you know, we have a brotherhood that could be very different than even someone who lives right next door to me. Right. Or even someone who is a part of your actual family. Right. And, and when we, when we, you know, really come to terms with that truth, that our unity is not, it's really not about, you know, our shared blood or our shared ancestry, our shared, Mm -hmm. you know, culture, American culture, our shared political affiliations, but it's unity based on the atoning work of Jesus. Like that's the most important thing about us. That's the most important thing about our unity. And that's really why Christians have no interest in unity with the world. It's because they do not share salvation with us. They do not share our faith. Now, of course, we do relate to the world and we do relate to the world in some very important ways. But ultimately, we can't have unity with the world. Because they do not have unity with Christ. Right. We have relevance in the world. And I think that's an important thing to say is that the church is relevant to the world. And to a lesser degree, the world and the culture has relevance to the church. So we are relevant to one another, but we are not related to one another. Right. In the sense of brotherhood or we are not united to one another. In the same way that the church, even a church that's, like I said, separated by miles and oceans we have with one another, the world that lives right outside our doors, we have relevance to, but we don't have relationship with. Right, right. And that's that's the distinction. That's the big difference. The, the real distinction or the real brotherhood, the real family is those who are called by God into a relationship with him by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ alone. Right. And those relationships with believers are are the most important relationships we have on this earth. Absolutely. And what's unfortunate in our day with a lot of the sort of political issues, the sort of social issues that we see is that people, even people in the church are more concerned with unity with others who have either the same political affiliations or the same mindset, mm-hmm. the same worldview. And it's not on the basis of Christ. We don't, 
you know, uh, Doug Wilson gave, gave a great example. He said, you know, if, if, if we were, you know, if we look at sort of the direction of the church and the direction of the world as sort of an interstate highway, you know, with one, uh, with one side going one direction, one side going the other, other direction, he's like, we have more in common with, you know, as, as a, as a driver of a, I don't know, Toyota Tacoma, let's say as the driver of a Toyota Tacoma, I have more in common with the driver of a Ford F-150 heading in the same direction than I do with the other guy driving a Tacoma going the other way. Yeah. Right. On the other side of the highway. And I thought that this illustration was just so like really got to the root of the issue is that we don't recognize that these sort of external issues are not what unite us. Yeah. It's not about our skin color. It's not about our political ideologies. Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, our geographical location, but it's about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And really, if, if, if we're if we're trying to unify over anything else, that unity will end up crumbling at, at some point. That's right. And that's exactly that's what we're seeing in our day today is we're seeing this sort of, you know, this sort of faux like uh, cultural unity that we once had right behind mm-hmm. the red, white and blue behind, mm-hmm. you know, this this American, you know, exceptionalism, you know, mm-hmm. we're seeing that deteriorate because that's not a true unity. Uh, the true unity has to be. In Jesus Christ, it right. can't it, it can't function, especially for believers. It can't it can't be with anything else. And that's why you know um, I've known several friends uh, who, I mean, I've been close with them. And there's one particular uh, a couple of friends who have said this on multiple occasions that there is nothing, nothing that these two men have in common. One of them loves sports. The other one loves Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> one of them. You know, uh, grew up, uh, you know, and 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 he went on to work with his hands outside a lot. The other one right. sat in a cubicle. You know, there was nothing that united their interests at all, except for Christ. Yeah, and because Christ was the basis of their friendship and their brotherhood, man, they were as close as they could be. But it wasn't because they were just so similar. It wasn't because that, you know, they were both Toyota Tacomas, to use the illustration from earlier. No, it was because they were going in the same direction. Right. They were right. following after Christ. And they desired Christ preeminently. And so in that desire, they found commonality and unity in their yeah. relationship and their friendship. And that's the remarkable nature of the Christian religion. Yeah. And Machen makes a very uh, insightful point um, in this chapter. He says, the greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from enemies outside, Mm. but from enemies within. Yes. It comes from the presence within the church of a type of faith and practice that is anti-Christian to the core. We've already talked about the influence of, uh, you know, paganism and postmodernism and all these anti-biblical ideas and, you know, uh, thought processes. Um, and we don't recognize that the, the issues we face in the church today are primarily coming from inside the church, that it it has to do with, um, you know, either, either because we're dealing with unregenerate people Mm -hmm. or because we are just so influenced by the world around us that we're not willing to lay down our pride. We're not willing to lay down our our egos, our own ways of thinking, and subject them 
to the authority of scripture. Yeah. Well, we've, you know, we've allowed false teachers, which are called wolves. Yeah. We've allowed them yeah. to the church. We've got wheat and tares growing up together, which Christ told us was going to happen. Wheat yeah. and tares are going to grow up together. And those tares, <laughs> they tear us up, yeah. you know, not to be overly simplistic in the, the but to be clear, Jesus comes back to a wheat field. That's right. Post mill. <laughs> he surely does. Sorry, I had I had to I had to take it while I could. He did. He but, did. He had to take it. But but, but Machen's point is that you know we often, especially in the church, we often look out there and say the problem is the pro- out there. Yeah, the problem is is with 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 that group of people, those criminals or or those thugs or those politicians or right. those you know right. name it, and we don't recognize that no, the problem is in here mm-hmm. and specifically the problems in our own hearts, mm-hmm. right? The problem is not that, um, you know, is not that, well, uh, you know, they're, they're legalizing theft through their taxation policies. No, the, the issue is that we still have theft in our hearts Yeah, and we, we have not dealt with those sins. We have not brought placed those sins at the foot of the cross. And so the issue is not really with them out there. It's with what's going on in here. Yeah. Right. We look out there and we go, well, the issue is that they're all killing each other. And it's like, but we hate our brothers. Yeah. And Jesus said, if you hate your own brother, you murdered him in your heart. Yeah. But we don't want to deal with that. No, no. We, we want to point out there. And if we, we're, if we're truly going to see reformation, well, then we have to, we have to take a good hard look in the mirror yes. and recognize that the problem is not out there, but the problem is, is in here. It starts with me. First and foremost, you know, it, and that, you know, how do you try? Why on earth would you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye when yes, you have yes. a log in your own? You know, is the, is the, and it's almost like Christ knew what we were going to be facing because he did. Yeah, and he warned us against it. First, look to your look to your own issues and the sins that you harbor in your own heart. Deal with those, and then you have an opportunity and you have a chance to start working with other people, not to condemn them and not to do the work yourself to remove their speck, nothing like that, but to come alongside them and to seek after the one who can remove those things. Right, right. And, you know, he does make he does make an, an important point, I think, um, when he's kind of dealing with, okay, you have these sort of liberals who reject core tenets of the Christian faith, who stand contrary to the teachings in the the confessions and the creeds. And and so at, at what point, right, at what point do people bow out, right? And, and who mm-hmm. should leave, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who, who's, who, who should actually ste- step aside and say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go ahead. I'm, you know, should, should it be the liberal who says, well, because I disagree with Christianity, hey, I'm no longer a Christian. Or should the conservative Christians, the one who want to retain the core uh, essential teachings of, of the Christian faith, should they be the ones to say, you know what, this institution is, is gone. And so I'm going to, I'm going to step out. I'm going to step out from, you know, in Machen's instance, I'm going to step out of the PCUSA because yeah. they've clearly rejected the gospel. They've rejected yeah. the core, uh, the core of the Christian faith. And Machen does a good job of saying, listen, you should not, except for a last resort, you should not be, if you were the Christian, you should not be the one to leave. You should stand firm and you should hold fast to the convictions in the scripture. He said, it's a last resort that you wipe the dust from your feet. That's right. that's a last resort. But you should stay and you should fight the fight. Now, Machen stayed and he fought the fight and he 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 struggled and contended until he recognized finally there comes a point where, yes, you do have to just leave 
wipe the, the dust from your feet and you have to go and you have to, to start, you have to start getting back to the roots of the scripture. Right. But that does speak to our mentality now. Man, if I don't like the church that I go to at this present moment, I can go right across the street in America. I can go right across the street and I can I can find another church that suits my liking a little bit more. Right, right. Or or this one often gets said a lot, well, I'm just not being fed there. Yeah. And I'm not going to make a commentary on whether they're being fed there or not because I cannot know every instance by which that statement has been said. But I do know this that I'm not being fed there is never an excuse to go. Right. You know what you do at that point? I'm not being fed there. Let me link arms and let me start joining in with the feeding process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's let me we, start. We, yeah. we, we 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 have to make sure first and foremost that our objections, our issues are not rooted in ourselves. Right. Right. I'm not being fed. Well, why are you not being fed? Is it because the word is not being preached to you? Is it because, um, you know, uh, the text is not being rightly divided or are you not being fed because you're not, like you said, you're not actually linking arms with your fellow believers and actually, you know, participating in what's taking place. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were, we, we were all brutally honest with ourselves, a lot of our instincts to leave come from, uh, issues within ourselves. I would agree. It's not actually that the place is so bad or because, you know, that I'm so bad is really right. That's, that's essentially what it is. And either, you know, we don't want to come to terms with the truth that is being preached or we don't want to participate. We just want to consume. We don't want to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we don't want the truth communicated to us. We want to be entertained. And so we have to make sure that, more than anything else, that God's word is what is doing the judging. Yes. That it's not simply me going, I am going to, you know, because I don't, I don't feel good about this, that I'm going to go ahead and leave. Like, no, 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 no. We have to measure it up against scripture. Right. We have to measure ourselves up against scripture. We have to measure our local churches up against scripture. And we have to recognize that regardless, God is going to build his church. Yeah. And, and even even if, if my staying here in this church or my leaving from this church uh, you know, not big C church, not yeah, universal right, church, right, right, yeah, but local church. Even if it comes at great personal cost, God's church is not going to be thwarted. Mm-hmm. His plans are not going to be right. thwarted. And so Machen closes the book with, with this paragraph that I wanted to read. He says, is there no res- refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment that all things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross? If there be such a place, then that is the house of God. And at that, the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. And so we're going to go ahead and close our discussion there. We have uh, thoroughly enjoyed this book. I feel similar to the last one we did from Spurgeon. Yes. That it'd be just much better if you just listen to Machen communicate. He's obviously, you know, a true scholar, a, um, you know, a very smart intellectual individual. And so... You'd be much more benefited to listen to what he has to say than to listen to us jabber on and on. And so before we do, I did want to announce what our next book is going to be. Josh, do you want to do you want to tell us about that? Well, so we've it's come up a few times now about what is 
Pelagianism and who is Pelagius. And our students have been kind of going through a little bit of a few. He's the winged about horse that. that Hercules rides. He's right. <laughs> that's that's absolutely right. right he and, oh no, that's Pegasus. Oh my bad, sorry. So uh, we are going to look into uh, it's a little book. It's not very long. It's about uh, 115 pages. I want to say give or take. Yeah. Um, and it's called Saint Augustine verses or is it it's and, augustine and the pelagian and, controversy and the pelagian controversy yeah and that's yeah. a short little book on the issue augustine and the pelagian controversy by bb warfield who was a a teacher of machin also considered one of the great princeton theologians and so i do think that this uh this short study and this short uh look at this issue of pelagianism uh, and what Augustine, how Augustine sort of dealt with Pelagianism, I think will be very helpful. Um, you know, for us, not only understanding our own history, the history of um, our faith, of our church, but also understanding how to deal with, you know, Pelagian ideologies or even semi Pelagian ideologies. And so you can look forward to that book coming out. Um, I believe it's going to be March 1st. I think that's I right. I think, yeah, because this will come out December. We'll have come right. out December yeah. 1st and then March 1st is yeah. when the next one will come out. And so you can look forward to Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy by B.B. Warfield coming out uh, March 1st of 2022. And until then, we'll look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of Christianity and liberalism. And we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now, this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from North Clay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon, here on the Ardent Archives. of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy by B.B. Warfield. Written in the late 1800s, Warfield's informative work explores the relevance of Augustine's opposition to the Pelagian heresy. The primary issue for Augustine in the controversy that ensued at the beginning of the 5th century was the nature of man's will and the necessity of God's grace. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy by B.B. Warfield.